Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, and today we're very fortunate to be joined by Rana Midder, director of the Oxford China Center and professor of the history and politics of modern China. A regular contributor to BBC Radio and the History Channel, Professor Mitter earned his PhD in history from Cambridge, is a fellow of St. Cross College, and currently teaches in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Oxford University. He's the author of five books, which build primarily upon his research interests of Chinese nationalism and the war with Japan, starting with his 2000 publication, The Mandarin Myth, Nationalism, Resistance, and Collaboration in Modern China. This was followed by A Bitter Revolution, China's Struggle with the Modern World, released in 2004. His third book, and shortest by design, is Modern China, a very short introduction, published in 2008 which is volume 167 of the very popular Oxford University Press Very Short Introduction Series, which now number over 670 titles. His fourth book, Forgotten Ally, China's War with Japan, 1937 to 1945, is the American title for the same book published in the UK under China's War with Japan, 1937, to 45, The Struggle for Survival, both released in 2013. His most recent book, China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism, published last year by Harvard University Press, was featured on New Books last December in an interview with Daijina Dor, thoroughly covering this book such that today builds on that discussion by broadening the perspective to include more of this engaging professor's scholarship. Professor Mitter, Rana, thanks so much for, again, taking the time to talk with us today about your books and research interests. Uh, Keith, it's a huge pleasure to be here on New Books Network. I'm only sorry that because of the continuing pandemic, uh, I have to do this remotely from Oxford while you're in Shanghai, but that adds a certain global element to our conversation, I think. Let me start, Rana, by asking you about your life at Oxford. One thing about university life is the demand on professors to continue to write and research in addition to teaching in the classroom. Can you share a bit about how you handle the challenges that presents? And I'm thinking of the long list of co-edited publications and journal articles that you've written over the years for publications ranging from the European Journal of East Asian Studies, the Journal of Contemporary History, even the chapters you've written for edited books. The life of a scholar, teaching, writing, sharing your expertise. How do you make it all work? Well, Keith, thank you very much for a a very uh, positive way of of putting that question to me. Sometimes sitting down, as I think is true for many academics, it feels like we're juggling a lot and maybe, uh, you know, trying our best not to slip up where we we can. I mean, the first thing I should say is that, uh, you know, for all those who are listening to this in, in real time, so to speak, the sudden and unexpected change in global circumstances, the pandemic, in other words, has changed university life, perhaps, you know, 
even more than some other aspects of life which have been changed greatly also and I want to also say that I'm aware that, you know, teaching at a university like Oxford or the universities around the world, which do have resources to fall back on and, um, you know, a certain amount of, of, of cushion, you might say, we should feel quite lucky. So even though I'm going to give you uh, a few tales of woe, uh, I want to be very aware that there are many people out there in a much worse position and that we should be very aware of that. So I would say that, you know, on a day to day basis, in some ways, what I've been doing is a continuation of the way I've been interacting with both scholarship and scholars over, you know, 20 or 30, uh, 30 years as I've moved from being uh, an excited graduate student to uh, being uh, more middle-aged, let's, let, let's put it that way. Uh, you know, one of the great joys of teaching at Oxford is that scholarship and your own work on it happens in tandem with your opportunity to shape and talk to some incredibly smart uh, often younger people, but, you know, scholars who are also um, forming their own views. And for me, that would, for instance, be the group of students who are doing doctorates in modern Chinese history, as you've been kind enough to indicate, um, the history of modern China, with a particular concentration, I guess, on the period between, let's say, the 1920s and maybe the 1980s, uh, concentrating even more, perhaps, on the, on the middle period of sub-period, you might say. Uh, so the mid-20th century is a subject that I've had the you know joy of concentrating on. And I have a wonderful cohort of graduate uh, students and some postdoctoral fellows. And of course, right now, all of them are stuck somewhere. And that somewhere isn't necessarily in Oxford. So when you uh, talk about teaching right now at Oxford, what I'm actually really often doing is doing what I'm doing with you, which is getting on a, a kind of, you know, a video or voice call and finding out what's going on. Now, one of the things that I think is really um, wonderful, in a sense, from a terrible situation, but at least one wonderful uh, result is that if you're doing Chinese history and you're looking at archives or documents, then you might as well be in China. Many of my students are, of course, themselves Chinese. So I have the opportunity to log on regularly and have a chat with my students in Nanjing or in Guangzhou or in Hong Kong, and find out how their projects on, you know, kind of Cold War cross-straits relations or uh, the uh, development of Chinese military strategy during World War II, how all those sorts of projects are, are going. They're able, in a way that makes you quite envious, to say, oh, I got to the library today and I found this, or, you know, I went to the archive and found, uh, and found that. Um, you know, in an ideal world, I would be seeing them close up as well while they were here in Oxford. But I do still very much feel that, that that scholarly communication is is very much there. And then that helps me, you know, when I do manage to find the time to uh, actually get on with what I'm doing, to, to think, you know, through their eyes as well and think, well, how can what I'm writing be of use to the next generation of scholars coming up who want to see, you know, debates and consideration of agendas to do with history that maybe haven't been thought about before or need to be thought about in a new way. So I see what's happening at the moment is a very symbiotic process in terms of, you know, engagement with scholars in the university, outside the university, and what I do as a solo scholar. But that's also very, very much shaped by the fact that we're currently in this, you know, crazy situation, which we hope will end fairly soon, but I think still has at least, you know, several months to, to run in its its most heightened uh, heightened form. Yeah, I no, I agree. And generally you're especially your students in China, do you guys converse in Chinese or do you make a point of speaking in English? 
Um, I don't make a point of speaking in English, but the students who I'm supervising for doctoral purposes, um, you know, are clearly fluent English speakers because admission to Oxford obviously does demand a, a pretty high level of English. Uh, I mean, on occasion, we'll, we'll break into Chinese on various things. Uh, the occasions on which I find myself mostly speaking Chinese are ones that are slightly um, less frequent in current conditions, but I hope will come back again, which is to engage with colleagues in China, because the um, the fields that I specialized in, uh, you know, Republican era history, wartime history, are in some cases ones where there are fantastic scholars, uh, not too far from where you're sitting now, Keith, in, in, in Shanghai. Um, some of them speak fantastic English, quite a few, you know, English isn't what, the, what sure. the language they use most comfortably. And so in those cases, yes, I would absolutely be speaking to them in Mandarin. But with graduate students, uh, you know, they've come to learn an English speaking environment. So we generally um, do uh, do speak to them in that in that context. You've been writing uh, about emerging nationalism in China since your first book, The Manchurian Myth, uh, which you wrote at, as your dissertation under Hans Vanderven at Cambridge. In the book, you acknowledge his meticulous and constructive advice. Can you share a bit about Vanderven and the scholars that have influenced your approach to historiography and China studies? By all means. Uh, well, first, let me, if I may, as you've kind of there, pay, pay tribute to Hans van der Ven, uh, professor of Chinese history at uh, Cambridge. And he has become, I think, known certainly in the Western world as one of the most important, if not the most important analysts, uh, historical analysts of China's military history in particular and its history of wartime. And I have to, in particular, since we're talking about new books, if you haven't had him already, Keith, I think you should, think you should get him on to talk about his wonderful book, China at War, which came out a couple of years ago, which looks at the whole sweep of period from 1937 up to the end of the Korean War in 1953 uh, and, and shows how changing tactics of warfare over that time also changed Chinese society more, more, more broadly. But he is himself a product of a very distinguished um, intellectual lineage. Trained at, he was trained at Harvard University, worked with scholars such as Philip Kuhn, now sadly passed away a few years ago, but a kind of legendary figure in the, the modern China mm -hmm. uh, field. Um, and Hans van der Ven, I think, you know, drew on that with all, has drawn on it with all his graduate students. And, you know, he's had probably 15, 20 students, I guess, make their way through his uh, doctoral training program, you might, uh, you might say. It's all with him about all the right things, which is looking at the evidence, making sure that you're kind of digging deep into the sources and making measured judgments that you can then defend when uh, brought up uh, against them. So I think, you know, many, including I'm sure myself, who come in with, you know, quite uh, uh, broad ranging ideas, but maybe not necessarily the uh, ability to kind of discipline them into something that can actually stand up to uh, uh, to examination. I think we all drew a lot from the way in which um, Hans uh, you know, taught us to look at evidence, and that's, I think, why that word meticulous would have appeared in there. In terms of, of wider influences, I mean, it's almost invidious to, to name names because there are so many people out there <laughs> who have written wonderful, uh, wonderful work. So I might just name one, if I may, and who'll be a well-known name, to, I think, to you, Keith, and to many on this um, uh, podcast who, who look at China books, but just because he still has such a prominent place in Western understanding of China. And that's Professor Jonathan Spence of Yale University. And the reason I mention him is not just that, of course, he's written a huge range of wonderful, accessible books on China underpinned by major research. But I'm pretty sure, and uh, I hope I'm not sort of, uh, you know, as you know, oral history can be tricky because you're remembering things that happened a long time ago. But I'm pretty sure that when I was a teenage uh, school kid, 
Um, I think his book, The Gate of Heavenly Peace, Chinese and Their Revolution, which is about the period from the late Qing up to the 1980s, in fact, it was, it was published in the early 80s, um, that that book was the first book of modern Chinese history I ever read. Uh, and I still have it on my shelf. I can see it actually now if I turn around from where I'm sitting now. Um, in some ways, you know, it's a very inspiring combination of being able to write. You know, if I had Jonathan Spencer's writing skills, I really would be flying. But, you know, something that's very readable, but also based in really serious research. Well, and how I would uh, describe your writing as well. I, I, I think it's uh, um Hey, well, do you mind talking about um, Professor uh, Van de Ven's specific interest in and more broadly uh, the historical significance of the formerly foreign-run uh, Chinese institution, the Maritime Customs Service, and yeah. and the relevance to international trade involving China. And and I'm thinking here about um, the U.S. trade tariffs and the and the WTO, of course, more more generally. Sure. I mean, let, let me say something briefly about that Maritime Customs Service and its, its more contemporary relevance. But just again, to um, flag up to you, Keith, that uh, it sounds to me like you're uh, gunning to get Hans van der Ven on the uh, on the podcast. And I think you should absolutely do that. So, uh, you know, I, uh, I think that should be that should be the next mission. It's a small group of, of scholars in, in West, but also in in China. So Hans van der Ven, uh, Robert Bickers of Bristol University here in the UK. Uh, Zhang Jiayun, who's currently uh, right close to you, actually, over at Shanghai Jiao Tong. Um, mm. So with a Taiwan background, Western trained, but teaching in, in Shanghai, another very considerable scholar. And there, there are others, too. They've all been working on this weird, wonderful, you know, almost unique institution that most people in the West and China have forgotten about, I would say. This was the Maritime Customs Service, the Imperial Maritime Customs Service, set up in the late Qing dynasty by a man from uh, Portadown, Northern Ireland, an Ulsterman called Sir Robert Hart, uh, which basically collected tariffs and taxes on behalf of the Chinese government uh, to basically you know, provide a tax basis for, for, for China. So it was an imperial institution in the sense that it was set up by Brits, you know, essentially under coercion, but it actually served as a source of income for the Chinese government rather than being you know, kind of a purely extracted body like much of a British control in in India. So it's really kind of a, a hybrid sort of uh, of organisation. And the reason that it's important to know about it is a, it's a fascinating subject. So Van der Ven's book Breaking with the Past is one really exciting one on uh, on that. Uh, if you want to also read uh, Bickers's two fantastic books, uh, well he's written several fantastic books, but relevant to this, uh, The Scramble for China and Out of China, the two sort of a, a duology of, of books about the British presence in, in China published quite recently. And you should also, I think, uh, check out his very recently published new book, um, uh, China Bound, about the Swire family, who of course have a huge influence in Hong Kong, even today, but over, over 100 years. So all of these were bound up into that world in which the Imperial Maritime Customs Service uh, was essentially providing this underpinning of tax provision for China, but also more broadly bringing in modern methods of accounting, meteorology, a whole variety of things you might think was very far from what a customer service would do, but nonetheless a really important um, body. And it finally came to an end only just after World War II. Now, why is this relevant today? Well, if you think about some of the debates about international trade, as you were saying, Keith, you know, including this very how can one put it, um, you know, sort of uh, often rather vicious spat between the US, China, the EU and other major international actors. Ostensibly, it's about trade. 
And to some extent, of course, it, it is about specifics of how much barley you ship here or how many financial services are led into beyond a border there. But actually, what we're really talking about in many cases is about sovereignty and about norms. In other words, trade doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in a world where ideas like, you know, measurements, accounting, uh, national norms of what you do and don't you don't do are very much in, in flux. And the Maritime Customs Service is one of the things that shaped those norms in the context of late imperial China and early Republican China when it came to law, scientific progress, and so forth. And I think China and the US at the moment are having very similar sorts of debates. It's often you know, portrayed as a battle, and there can be a conflictual element, but I think of it in some ways more as a contest. Perhaps that's a, a better way to think of it, with the EU involved as well, as to who is going to dominate the sense of the norms and the frameworks that people use when they trade uh, and when they engage with each other. Because these days, you know, services are as important, if not more important to many economies. And the sale of a product, if you want to call it that, such as education across boundaries is just as much an aspect of today's trading world, uh, in some ways, as it was in the late 19th century, as selling, you know, coal or barley. And, you know, you can't sell education these days without having norms about cyberspace, without norms about what's permitted and what's prohibited in terms of, of content and a whole variety of other issues. So I think looking at that mm. historical question 150 years ago of what the Imperial Maritime Customs Service was up to is a really good framework for understanding some of the most compelling issues of the present day, which have to do with things like the World Trade Organization, with international cyber and technology standards, and a whole variety of things that may not seem to have a very clear historical background, but when you dig down a little bit into them, turn out actually to be historically extremely um, embedded in a much longer trajectory. For sure. And how institutions think really is something. Thank, thanks for sharing all that. Getting back to your particular situation, your dissertation became your first book. Uh, and uh, that was the Manchurian myth, a, a study of Manchuria in the early 1930s and the, the, the prelude uh, to the war with Japan. In your introductory first chapter, you point out that the book has two aims, and the first one was to examine basically the reality on the ground in the Japanese-created state, and that had to do with the actions of the resistance fighters, the collaborators, and, and then the nationalist exiles uh, from the region. But secondly, uh, also to show how important those events were in the formation of modern Chinese nationalism. The heart of the book really covers the different players you chose to highlight uh, in the various chapters, and I want to ask you about them. But first, can you explain to listeners what the Manchurian incident in 1931 was about? Uh, what you mean when you refer to the events surrounding it as a myth? Absolutely, Keith. Um, so, the word myth, I should just point out first, and uh, you know, this is, I think, a very important distinction to make, is not meant to suggest sort of untruth or lie or you know something that in some ways is sort of a deliberate fabrication. Rather, it's talking sure. about the way in which a sort of narrative about a particular set of events comes together for purposes that are often kind of you know more than the sum of their parts, if you, if you want to put it that way. And I lighted mm. on this one in particular because. Anyone who knows anything about modern Chinese um, history, and you don't need to know 
that much in this context. Notice that what you just referred to as the Manchurian incident, um, in other words, the sudden coup uh, launched by the Japanese Guangdong army on 18th of September 1931, a date for Chinese speakers still known as Jiu Ba, uh, September 18th, was not just you know a sudden act of military incursion that led to the occupation of most of northeast China, what we now think of as Dongbei, the three northeastern provinces, but quite often known in the West as, as Manchuria in, in those days, but also a sort of trigger point, you might say, for a much wider and bigger process, the reverberations of which are still very much with us today. And that's the, essentially the clash between Chinese nationalism and Japanese uh, imperialism, which, of course, shaped the 1930s and 40s and whose legacy is still felt in both countries in, in different ways. And when I say myth, what I wanted to point out in the book, and I hope, you know, managed, managed to do to some extent, is to say that there was a gap between a story that was told and to some extent is still told about a very heroic but in some ways monolithic idea of resistance that a small kind of plucky band of partisans after the Japanese invasion of the region, you know, were fighting back with the kind of hearts of the Chinese people behind them. And looking at the reality, which is that, yes, there was a significant, you know, grouping of people who actually did fight back against the, the, the Japanese. And eventually they'd become part of the wider war effort, which, as we now know, led to eventual, eventual Japanese defeat in 1945. But there were also complexities in the story. You know, one is that very large numbers of people, as we know from other similar situations, such as occupied France during World War II, did not fight the invaders. They weren't particularly nationalistic. They didn't have much of a sense of nation state. They were largely agrarian people. And, you know, another bunch of guys on horseback coming along and demanding taxes, whether they were Chinese, Japanese or anything else. Well, you know, maybe it didn't make that much difference to, uh, to, to to some of them. In other cases, of course, you have people who did fight bravely against the Japanese, but also sometimes hedged their bets, you know, sort of wanted to see if maybe they could do a deal and then, you know, eventually sort of slip back to the, the side of resistance as well. But it's a pointing out that people's loyalties are not always kind of fierce and uncomplicated and always driven by the nation state above all. So it was really the contrast between the messy reality and the narrative of heroic resistance that I wanted to point out. Not to say that the heroic resistance was in any sense false or, or untrue, because it absolutely it wasn't in many cases. It was very important, but rather that it wasn't simply uh, as often portrayed in, you know, a kind of uh, retrospective rosy glow that, you know, as soon as the enemy arrived, everyone sort of rose back and rose up in a nationalistic uh, fervor. So that was the kind of distinction I was trying to, to make. Hey, well, can you talk about the importance of the, the warlord uh, Zhang Chui-liang uh, in the lead up to the, to the Japanese occupation? By all means. I mean, Zhang Shui-liang was nicknamed in Western circles the young marshal because his father, Zhang Zolin, the old marshal, the warlord of Manchuria, the militarist leader, uh, had been assassinated by the Japanese in 1928. Um, and we should just say, sort of fast forwarding to the the end, uh, if if I may for a moment, uh, Keith, sure. the young marshal, Zhang Shuliang, uh, he was with us for a very long time. I think he didn't actually die till 2001. Um, he spent most of the last few decades of his life under house arrest uh, under Chiang Kai-shek, in, first of all on the mainland and then in uh, in, in Taiwan. So, you know, the latter half of his life was uh, uh, very constrained for, for all sorts of, of reasons. But in the 1920s and 30s, he was a serious player. Essentially, he was the sort of semi-autonomous militarist ruler of that region of the, the northeast, uh, Manchuria, as we, we called it then, or they called it then. And 
he was in alliance for the most part, not always, but for the most part with Chiang Kai-shek uh, after Chiang took over and uh, set up the, uh, the the Nanjing government in, in 1928. But his uh, fealty, his loyalty to Chiang was always uh, somewhat ambiguous and, and ambivalent as well. Um, and neither of them really trusted the other very much. In addition, it's worth noting that we use the term warlord, and obviously it's not a complementary term. So that slightly covers over the fact that if you look at some of the details of what was happening in 19, late 1920s Manchuria under Jiang Xiliang, he was quite a progressive um, militarist leader mm. in a sense. He was interested in you know, urban reform. He was interested in education, a whole variety of things. He himself, like his father, was a bit of a drug addict and in some ways lived up to certain militarist cliches. But he wasn't actually by any means a sort of purely reactionary um, character. But of course, good, bad, indifferent, his rule came to a sudden end with the Japanese um, military coup on 18 September 1931, which quickly threw him into exile and most of the uh, nationalist resistance in exile, um, outside, you know, beyond the Great Wall or inside the Great Wall, you might say, in, in, the, in the rest of China, because after that, essentially Manchuria was, was off limits territory for them all the way up to the end of World War II. People had underestimated him, isn't that the case? I think that's fair to fair to say. I mean, you're thinking of things like what the, the 1936 uh, Xi'an incident, or you've got something in mind there, obviously. Basically, like stereotyped him as being an easy mark, and it turns out that he had more on the ball than they anticipated. Oh, the, the Japanese. Yes, that's yes. certainly. Yes, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. No, Zhao Xiaoliang was was a like many, you know, like most historical figures. When you dig down, he has complexities that mean that it's not possible simply to give a kind of one line explanation of you know sure. what he was uh, what he was up to. Um, I would say that um, in some ways the Japanese, I think, thought he would be like his father. Uh, who they thought they'd been able to control. But I'd point out again that, you know, the Japanese had eventually assassinated his father in frustration because he wouldn't do what they said either. And I think that, yes, there was a growing fear by the early 1930s uh, in, in the, on the Japanese side that it might be the case that Jiang Xiuliang was not going to do what Chiang Kai-shek told him, and he, he certainly wasn't, but he also wasn't going to do what the Japanese told him. And as I've said, this sort of young cadre of you know, nationalist resistors who were very much there in the, uh, you know, the cities of, of, of the Northeast during that time were part of that mixture. And if I may, uh, just because it brings up the subject of a new book, which I know is very much at the heart of the podcast, Kath, Keith, if I may tell a little sure. story, which uh, I, I think might be, might be interesting here, showing how historical links can move on and on and on. So one of the young men uh, as part of this kind of, you know, youthful, urban, nationalist, Northeastern Manchurian kind of sense of, of, of their own identity Entity, was a young man named Yan Baohang. And Yan Baohang is a name that may be familiar to those who know a bit of Chinese history. He ended up as one of um, Mao Zedong's kind of big um, intelligence chiefs, you know, very much a key figure in the Chinese Communist Party. So um, he was, you know, I wrote quite a bit about, in fact, my first ever published academic article uh, was about Yan Baohang, um, you know, based on historical uh, materials. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's fine. So imagine my surprise. Uh, how long ago was it? Not that long, maybe three years ago, I think spring 2018, when I was at a cocktail party in Hong Kong, as it happened, and was introduced to an extremely impressive uh, lady, uh, worked in banking, works in banking. And it turns out that she was, she, she her surname was Yen and we got talking and it turned out that she was in fact Yen Bahang's granddaughter. And this is in fact uh, Yen Lan, 
who is now actually a very distinguished writer in her own right. She's recently published, first in French, now in English, a book uh, called The House of Yen, which is about her family history. I mean, herself mm. and her father, who was also a distinguished uh, political figure in, in the People's Republic. But also, of course, her grandfather, Mr. Yen Bahang, the Manchurian, um, you know, nationalist uh, activist and, and progressive uh, reformer. So I felt that, you know, at that cocktail party in Hong Kong, in some ways, I was sort of coincidentally getting a kind of link through the past to that first research that I'd done for this, mm -hmm. this book with this character who obviously I would never get to know, but was very much part of that phase of, uh, of, of history back in the 1920s. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, well, much of the book uh, built on, on different groups, uh, the co-opting of the local and the uh, provincial uh, local elites. I, I suppose you call those the collaborators, but they were distinct from the people who formed um, the Northeast National Salvation Society and their use of, of the discourse of nationalism, which is a theme there. You contrast this with post-World War II myth-making in European nations, as you, mm -hmm. uh, you've alluded to, those countries liberated from the Germans. And different still uh, were actual resistance fighters in Manchuria, like the compromised uh, leader uh, Ma Jun Chen. Your focus on the groups, um, how do they fit into the larger narrative for you? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think a very, very important one. I think they suggest a variety of things. And, you know, I think this will come up if we, we touch, as I think we're going to, uh, Keith, on some of the other things that I've written over over time. Let me ask answer the question by telling you a theme that I don't think I noticed when I wrote this you know book, which is over 20 years ago now, and has become more apparent to me over the years, which is that I've realized sure. I'm very interested in the people in China who are essentially historical losers, you know, in a sense, although, of course, the Chinese Communist mm. Party comes up in various ways in lots of things I've written. I've never been someone who concentrates on the Chinese Communist Party's history first and foremost. That's not where my you know, scholarly attention has been. And it is very much about people who, for one reason or another, ended up on the losing side of, of history in terms of their battles or their political centers. But trying to go back and sort of take them seriously and not just regard them as being sort of, you know, losers who fell by the well waysides, but understanding them in their in their own terms. So in terms of your question about, you know, where these groups sit, where they are, I would say, overall, that they're a reminder of something that I think is very important, and I still believe is, is, is very much the case today. Um, what I've, I've said in one of my books, I think, is that, that China is a plural noun. Uh, in other words, there are lots of different mm. viewpoints. There are lots of different ways of thinking about what it means to be Chinese. And, you know, these Northeastern characters are really interesting because they are fierce Chinese patriots. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. They feel a sense of Chineseness very strongly. But they also felt very strongly that they were from a particular part of China, from Dongbei, that had its mm. own history and its own engagement. And actually, that's true. You know, in, in later work, I've looked at places like Chongqing down in the, the southwest, very different part of China, but also a place that has its own fierce nationalism, but also a very fierce sense of regional identity too. And the two are not incompatible with each other. So I think the Northeast nationalists, the Northeastern, you know, kind of um, activist movement, were one of the first examples of something I've come back to over and over again, which is the sort of multiplicity of how you are Chinese. You know, the idea it's not just a monolithic identity, mm -hmm. which is imposed top down. Hey, you make the point that your study also differentiates the Japanese occupation uh, from prior foreign interventions, because it, and I quote, 
demanded for the first time a clear choice between acquiescence and resistance to full-scale occupation. I, I realize these things are fluid, but at this point, why does your myth about the Manchurian incident become an integral part of China's collective self-consciousness, or does it really? I think it does. Well, I think the ambiguity is this, uh, Keith. Mm. There has been a strong tendency, I mean, certainly, I think, you know, with the current government in China, but actually going back over much of the 20th century, so it's not exclusive to now at all, to try and impose very monolithic ideas of what nation state identity is, uh, and make it quite top down. And I think that what I'm being what I was saying there is that actually, there is this sort of fluidity, I think you use that word, and I think it's a very good one, in terms of what people feel, people feel sort of different sorts of attachment at different times in different ways. And, you know, the, the trick is to be able to actually make these things compatible with, uh, with, with, with each other. So that sort of Resistance versus acquiescence idea. I mean, if you think about the long sweep of Chinese history, you know, there have been an awful lot of countries, um, sorry, a lot of invasions. There have been a lot of different changes of regime and so forth over hundreds and hundreds of years. And, you know, ordinary people have often had to just get on with it. But the number of occasions where people had to make start choices, you know, black and white, either or often could be sort of blurred, particularly in, era, in, in, in eras before modern communications, modern media and and so forth. And I think in a sense, what I was saying with this case study is that nationalism and the creation of the modern nation state forces those choices in a way that some of the earlier types of identity, including those under the age of the classical empires, didn't force on people in quite the same sort of way. No, it's a good point. And, and do you feel like the Ma Jianchan story, that there's more to that? I think that, you know, this particular character, for those who don't know, you know, Ma Jianchan is one of these sort of peasant warriors, you know, this sort of uh, local warlord who basically fought the Japanese quite uh, uh, effectively, but then did spend some time actually working with them and then kind of switched sides uh, again. I think the point that I was really making goes back more to the idea that people are human, you know, they're ambiguous. You know, he didn't know that the Japanese were going to be defeated in the end. Uh, it, It shouldn't have all been on his shoulders. And I think that in this particular case, we're talking about the fact that people make choices and switch back and forth often in fluid situations where identity is changing. My point is that, you know, you don't project back retrospectively these very rigid ideas of nation state and nationalism to a period when they were much more fluid. And the case of Majanshan, I think, is important beyond the man himself, who obviously is not that well known, uh, to make that wider wider point, which still has a lot of relevance today, I think. Do, do you think it's fair to assert that the second goal of the book and, and your uh, dissertation, The Modern Origins of Chinese Nationalism, becomes a, one of the primary points of inquiry linking your scholarship over the years, at, at least in your books, uh, since the myth of Manchuria? Um, I think it does, actually, yes. So, I mean, you're kind enough to suggest that there is a thread that, that, that links them together. And I think it is probably around that idea the multiplicity of different types of, of identity, including the identity of, of, of nation state and, and nationalism, and whichever case one's looking at, uh, whether it's, you know, this Manchurian case or the May 4th movement or, you know, more recently, the way in which different parts of China uh, deal with the legacy of the, of the Second World War, um, that it's not it's, it's that nationalism and, you know, the sense of an increasingly integrated national identity is real in China. You know, I think it is absolutely a, a phenomenon. Sure. I'm not, you know, for a minute um, denying that, but rather to show that when you 
look below the surface, it has huge complexity that official discourses often don't fully um, acknowledge. So I think, yes, that that thread does continue through the quite varied set of case studies that I, I've looked at over the over the years. You're, you're right. Well, moving on a bit, uh, in 2004, uh, your book, A Bitter Revolution, uh, China's Struggle with the Modern World, came out for a more general audience. Uh, the narrative you set up for readers, quite engaging, and it covers a lot of ground. Uh, you begin with the founding of the May 4th movement during the student uh, demonstrations against the Versailles Treaty and the granting uh, of the of Germany's uh, Chinese concessions to, to Japan. You examine slices of time uh, from the 1920s through the millennium. The frames seem to reveal quite different societies as you interpret the history and politics of a modern China. But the common thread uh, is the relevancy of the May 4th movement. Can you share some of the May 4th themes in your book? And do you think May 4th uh, still shares more commonality with contemporary Chinese politics than even the Mao era? Thank you, uh, Keith. Well, very interesting and complex set of questions there. So I'll try and sort of unpick them one by one by one. Yes, you know, the device that runs through a bit of revolution, which, um, you know, as you say, was, was a book written in part to try and tell you know others who are interested in history but not necessarily china specialists something that i thought was important about china and hadn't been i think well understood outside the china field itself which is the continuing importance of elements of this may 4th theme and again you know i think listeners to this podcast are likely to be in many cases china specialists who know that this is the student demonstration of may 4th 1919 you know a highly important moment in terms of uh, the nationalist narrative of the, of the 20th um, uh, century but I would say that overall, um, we are talking about an event which encompasses a variety of themes that have much greater resonance beyond the date of May 4th, 1919 itself. So, you know, nationalism, certainly the idea of, of a nation state that was going to be sort of strong and powerful as a, uh, as a strong part of that. Also, I think a sort of cosmopolitanism, the idea that, you know, you draw from the outside world to try and reshape what it means to be uh, Chinese. And that's more disturbingly mm. in some cases, actually, a willingness to engage with um, you know, violence as a transformative means of of change um, as well. Not all of these elements necessarily operate in quite the same sort of a sort of a way, and at the same time. But by contrasting different um, events, I think that it showed up different strands of that movement. So we've got the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, and I, I bring this up because that's perhaps the one that seems at first glance to be most alien to what we classically think of as the May 4th movement, you know, cosmopolitan, outward-looking, freedom, democracy, these sorts of ideas. But if you look at the way in which the Cultural Revolution was presented in China at the time, much of the language and much of the ideology behind it, ideas of throwing off the past, of smashing the old culture, of liberation, uh, many of these actually had a very strongly May 4th flavor about them. The difference being that some of the elements of the classic May 4th movement, including, you know, embrace of the foreign, were clearly, you know, very strongly rejected, at least ostensibly, during the Cultural Revolution period. So the wider point that I was trying to make is that um, there are these movements in which various common factors emerge. And again, youth would be another one, you know, clearly very much mm. uh, celebrated by the um, 
May 4th leaders of the time and absolutely fetishized during the Cultural Revolution, you know, the, the Red Guards. And yet, of course, the end result that you get and the context in which they operate makes a profound sort of uh, uh, sort of difference. So, as I think I say in that book, just as you know, you can look at the European Enlightenment and say that it either leads to you know, kind of the liberal democracy of the United States or it can lead, you know, to the dictatorship of the of the Soviet Union. And both of those are inheritors of the Enlightenment, even though they have very different endpoints. So the May 4th movement is also very multiple in the different ways in which it was interpreted in China's 20th century. You have a, a lot going on in that book and two people that you talk about and and develop a bit are Zhou Tafan and, and Du Zhongyuan. Why are these individuals important to the narrative? Sure. Uh, well, they're important to me because I wanted to put in a couple of perhaps less well-known characters. I deal with people like Liu Xun, the great Chinese writer, who are, are quite well-known sure. to give context. But Zhou Tafan and Du Zhongyuan are two, you know, kind of intellectuals in the 1920s, 1930s. Um, and I, I reproduce, well, actually, I have to translate because they're not available in English, uh, you know, quite a lot of their writings because they, again, encompass something much bigger than just the people themselves. But let me take Zoltar Fun. Uh, you know, he, again, uh, strode the streets not far from where you're sitting, I guess, uh, Keith, because he was a Shanghai uh, guy sure. and you know, very yeah. much part of that kind of movement of the 20s and 30s when you know life was changing and young people wanted to know how to to behave. So he wrote a sort of, amongst other things, I think the thing that hooked me in with him, he wrote this agony column in a uh, newspaper that he edited there, Shenghua. I still don't know whether or not those letters were real or whether he kind of, he and his buddies actually wrote them together. But in a sense, it doesn't matter because actually what they did was to pinpoint what were the issues really on people's minds. And they re they feel so modern, you know, in, in some ways, the same questions came back in the 1980s, in the reform era and in the present day, which is, you know, should young women, you know, be seen out with a young man? You know, even now there are issues around this but you know china the 1920s this is explosive stuff in the the may 4th um, era or, you know what does it mean to be free what does it mean to be equal and by debating these subjects in the public prints being read by you know hundreds of thousands of people and asking these questions and coming up with some very interesting answers i think someone like Zoltafen, who as i say is, is not perhaps very well remembered outside the chinese speaking world i think gives a window for Western readers, who, of course, the, the book is, is, is aimed at, at understanding how young Chinese at the time work through those dilemmas and reminds us also that in the China of the 80s, of the 2000s, of the 2020s, variants on these dilemmas are still very much with us. You know, these questions have not gone away. Keeping in mind uh, everyone's time constraints, uh, let, let's move on uh, for sure. to the book you, the book you wrote. Uh, in 2008, where you essentially summarize the history of modern China in 153 pages, if you include the timeline. Uh, <laughs> Quite further small reading, pages, too, Keith. Quite small pages. Right, yes. I, I have to say, uh, a tour de force of summary writing for students. I'm um, talking about modern China, a very short introduction. Uh, is it an exaggeration uh, for me to describe it as the most fundamental and essential of writing skills. More to the point, what's the process of writing a, sh a very short introduction? Was it difficult to write? It's a very different discipline. Uh, I mean, I'm reminded of that famous old story of the guy, you know, who said, uh, I, I wrote a long book, so I didn't have time to write a short one. You know, in other words, you know, <laughs> when you can basically, right. particularly in the age of WordPress, saying just write, 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 you can find out that you're piling stuff up, not necessarily always to good purpose. And, you know, Oxford University Press have this, you know, very strict discipline with the, these books that they have to be no more than 35,000 words. And to get a whole topic in there is really, you know, quite a quite a challenge. So 
as you can imagine, mm-hmm. lots of things were in there originally that had to come out. And uh, I think there are probably still things that, you know, people say, well, you should have had more on this. You should have had more on, on that. It does try also to say something about the contemporary Chinese um, world. There's sections on the mm-hmm. economy and international relations as well. But the history you're right is at the, uh, at the heart of it. I think the key thing was that it got to this question of, you know, what is I mean, when I say modern China, of course, I meant China in the sense of, you know, relatively contemporary China, you know, the history from the 18th century onwards or whatever and, and, the, and, and the modern world. But I was also using it in terms of, you know, the word modern as an explanatory adjective. In other words, the question of, you know, is it linear? Is it progressive? Is it rational? All these things that we associate with modernity. And the answer mm. in many cases for China, of course, is yes. And the question of, but then if it's not Western, and clearly China isn't Western, what does it mean to be modern and to be Chinese? And I think, as I've said, in a sense, that question is at the heart of many of the other books I've written. And in some ways, this short book is a distillation, you know, hopefully for a much wider student student, student audience of that bigger question of what modernity actually uh, actually is and you know it, 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 it's a it's a it's a book that i think is ambivalent about what the answer uh, is because it's hard to to pin down but that was i think the sort of wider uh question that i was trying to get through along with of course you know i hope a fairly uh hardcore amount of, of facts and figures that will be helpful people who just need to 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 uh, to read it as many people i think did um say on a plane, you know, on a kind of flight from the US or from Britain or wherever to, to China, you know, you've got your eight hours flight or whatever. And a book of that size is just the right length, I think, to read while, you know, sipping your, your free gin and tonic in, uh, in coach class. For anyone interested uh, on building a better understanding of the country, you really, uh, you'd be well advised to start with Professor Mitter's uh, Modern China, a, a very short introduction. In summarizing the fall of the Qing dynasty, which is obviously an important event in in all of this, you wrote, the Xinjiang, the new governance reforms, were not too little too late, but perhaps too much too late. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, by all means. Uh, I mean, I think this is, you know, for for those working in the modern China field, actually, the Xinjiang reforms, the new government reforms uh, of 1902 Mm. and following – um, have become a subject of real interest um, because they get to the question of whether or not it was feasible for the Qing dynasty to have survived by that stage. Uh, and I won't go into kind of all the intricate details. You should look at, you know, all sorts of people. Yeah. Uh, Douglas Reynolds, you know, about 25 years ago, has a wonderful book on uh, the reforms of that period. But the bigger question surrounding them is is, is really this. If you think about the kind of things that were being suggested under those reforms, you know, the abolition of the examination system, which did, of course, happen in 1905, um, uh, constitutional monarchy, potentially local assemblies. They look like the kind of things that a kind of reforming state would do. The problem was that by doing them in 1902 rather than 1898, when versions of them were first proposed and were basically cut off by the the Dowager Empress and her, her followers, was that in between there had been a horrific war, the Boxer War which left China with, you know, yet more violence and trauma or the aftermath of it and a huge debt. And therefore, part of the problem was that China was trying that stage to undertake really major, serious reforms at a time when actually fiscally it may not have been able to do so. And I think 
without laboring the point too much, there are sort of at least two parallels you can think of in the 20th century with different endpoints, one of which is 1946-47, which is a subject I'm looking at at the moment in terms of new research. And, you know, the mm. attempt to put in under the uh, Guomindang government uh, a uh, kind of constitutional reform at that point in what was essentially a bankrupt country at the end of World War II, still a very, very poor and, uh, and, and troubled place. And, you know, for whatever reason, that didn't work out. And then, you know, sets of questions about whether or not now that China is obviously a much more prosperous place, should there be, you know, various types of constitutional reform that can embed the, the system? And as you know, these are lively and ongoing debates and have been for, you know, decades uh, in the China of, of today. So you can't make direct parallels with things in the past, but you can certainly look at the history to try and understand the wider context. And I think the Xinjiang reforms are very interesting for precisely that reason. Linking up with the, the prosperity theme in that tract, uh, it's no surprise that Shanghai in the pre-war period had more millionaires than anywhere else in China, yet also hosted mm -hmm. the first Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. And of course, it's interesting that at least the building that they claim, you know, again, close to you, you're, you're in the center of all the action there in Shanghai, I have to say, uh, Keith, a building not too far from you, um, where the site of the first party congress is supposed to have been, is right in the middle of the incredibly ritzy Xintiandi uh, shopping area, which I think would have made those first uh, delegates uh, raise their eyebrows if they saw it today. Can you talk a bit about the Communist Party's alliance with Sun Yat-sen? Uh, what was the longer lasting significance uh, how, how did it complicate ideas of nationalism later? Sure. Um, I mean, Sun Yat-sen, you know, was always in some sense, in a very broad sense, I guess, a socialist, you know, one of his three people's principles. Min Sheng has been translated in different ways. People's livelihood is one way you hear it. But it's a form of socialism as well, you could uh, you could say. And I think that in the early days of the alliance between the communists and the nationalists, 1923 to 27, really, we're talking about. And Sun Yat-sen mm. himself died, of course, of, of cancer halfway through in, in 25. But in some ways, you know, there's not a huge difference between the two sides. You know, they're both Leninist parties after the influence of the uh, of the Bolsheviks uh, and uh, Comintern agents who come and you know help sort them out. Um, and the, between the left Kuomintang in particular and the CCP, there's very little differentiation at that time. And plenty of people actually were joint party members at that uh, at that stage. The difference really comes, I think, after 1925 when Sun dies. But I think that if you look back at that period, in some ways, the arguments that are going on are not wholly about economic policy. You know, people tend to think of this as left or right in that in that sense, because I think in many mm. ways, the idea of collective, uh, you know, collective economic uh, effort and various sorts and, you know, uh, bringing industry under the control of the state were very much shared, including by supposed right wingers like, like Chiang Kai-shek. They're more to do, I think, with power. The question of who is going to have power in China, at least one faction within that grouping increasingly came to think that the uh, Soviet Union was a baleful influence in uh, China, a negative influence. And it's notable that one of the figures who became most convinced of that, so much so he eventually defected to the Japanese in World War II, um, was Wang Jingwei, who was always regarded as one of the left wing of the Kuomintang, not the right wing. So I think we have to be a bit wary about putting Western political labels on exactly what the thought process was behind these various um, various actors. And remember that, you know, what later became a sort of staple of Chinese history, the communists versus the nationalists, Kuomintang versus the communists, which causes this huge, you know, rupture running through 20th century Chinese history, is partly because the two of them shared so much at the beginning 
and actually continued to share much of that you know DNA, you might say, uh, even when they were in the most deadly conflict. Do, do you think that, and that extends, I suppose, to the uh, the Wampo uh, Military Academy mm-hmm. yeah. connection, right? Yeah. Absolutely, the Huangpu or Wampo Military Academy, you know, kind of the legend, like West Point or whatever, kind of you know, the ground zero for um, the training of some of the top uh, communist and nationalist cadres, and everyone was there, you know, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, Mao Zedong, uh, Wang Jingwei, you know, these people knew each other, and I think that's one of the reasons why actually so much of the 20th century is so fierce, because you know, when Zhou Enlai and Chiang Kai-shek are in dispute with each other, you know, Chiang Kai-shek refers to Zhou Enlai as Enlai, you know, by this very intimate mm-hmm. first name, which, you know, Chinese people do very rarely other than for people they're very close to. And so the sense of betrayal or of, you know, misunderstanding was not just ideological. It was highly personal as well through much of that uh, that period. Your next book, uh, Missed the U.S. Presidential Cycle of 2012, uh, but you were close in 2013. <laughs> Your book, uh, China's War with Japan, 1937 uh, to 45, The Struggle for Survival, was released. Uh, It, too, focused on political and social history, and the engaging narrative uh, covered the fate of refugees on the ground, as well as major leaders such as uh, Chiang Kai-shek and and Mao. If you were to try to encapsulate that in in terms of your intent— uh, along the lines of a very short introduction, uh, how would you deal with that? In a sense, my bumper sticker or my elevator pitch, if you want to put it that way, uh, Keith, uh, for the book, uh, which is you know, a longish book, but it's a very short pitch, is this. This, to me at the time, was the single most important story of World War II that nobody in the West seemed to know about. Now, mm. obviously, there's a great deal of uh, complexity hidden beneath that overly slick line, but I think it gets to the start of why I wanted to, to write the book. Um, you know, if you think for a moment about the key statistics on China's involvement in World War II, you know, longest allied, well, lo- longest period fought by any of the allied powers, 1937 to 1945, um, huge numbers of deaths, over 10 million, probably more, uh, civilian and military killed. Refugees, as you say, 80 to 100 million Chinese becoming refugees in their own country, and not by any means incidentally, holding down over half a million Japanese troops in China's territory for the first four and a half years of the war before the Americans and the British come along at Pearl Harbor, or after Pearl Harbor, I should should say. So, you know, this is clearly a combat theater of some significance, but it's not one that generally makes its way into most of the standard Western histories of World War II. Even now, you'll see that most British books certainly start with 1939, you know, the invasion of Poland by Hitler's troops. Absolutely fair enough, horrific event. But, the, you know, the, the fact that um, the Chinese have been fighting for two and a half years before that uh, is made almost a sort of uh, prelude to uh, to the main event. And so a large part of my purpose was to try and say that the Chinese story matters a great deal, too. I'm not, you know, I don't claim and would never claim that the Chinese war effort was transformative in the way that the, you know, Soviet pushback against the Nazis was, or even, you know, clearly the American presence in the Pacific. But I would make a claim, and I stick, stick by it, that had the Chinese, the nationalists and the communists decided not to fight against the Japanese, then the whole history, not just of the war in Asia, but actually the war in Europe would be different, because unless the Chinese resist for several years, you don't get to the Pearl Harbor scenario, and that, of course, changes the nature of the global war. So all in all, I'm arguing for this both as a 
a human story of immense importance that, that must be told to, to a wider audience, but also as a geostrategic story that I think reorients significantly the way that we understand the trajectory of an event that in the West we think we all know, which is World War II. Yes. If people in the West need to understand or at least to expand their understanding of events, um, I, I think you have it there uh, with that book. As a, as a final question, Professor uh, Mitter, any recommendations you would make for readers looking to complement and enhance their understanding of your arguments? Um, but as I say, for the war, for those who are interested, as I say, I mentioned before, we'll mention again, Hans van der Ven's China at War, which I, I think is, is really a, a, a magnificent piece of work in terms of placing those Chinese conflicts in a wider global history for an audience that doesn't have to know much about China to, to, to get that book. I, I'd recommend that. More broadly speaking, I mean, there are so many wonderful historians and so many wonderful authors, but I'd say that one particular book, if I may mention, that has a big sweep on a rather different subject from anything that I've done, and therefore I'm going to just, and it's, it's relatively new, so appropriate for the network, Keith, uh, which is Maoism, A Global History by Julian Lovell. You know, I think that book looking at, you know, the big figure of the 20th century, Mao, and seeing how he had this sort of global impact, that's a really important contribution that helps to bring the importance of Chinese history to a much bigger audience that really, I think, you know, is in a position then to, to place Mao, place China, place the revolution, all of that in a context that's relevant to them as well. Ron Minner, uh, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks very much indeed, Keith, and I hope we'll have a chance to converse again. Sounds good. Talk to you later. <laughs>